Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond, and today I'm welcoming Jesse Cruikshank to the show. Jesse holds a Master's of Education from Harvard in Mind, Brain, and Education. She is an ordained minister and nationally recognized expert in disciple-making and the neuroscience of transformation. She has spent two decades applying neuroeducation research to discipleship, ministry training, experiential education, and organization development. Jesse is respected globally as a leader in missiological thought and a church and denominational consultant and is the founder of Whoology. Jesse lives in adventures with her family in Colorado. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. I am Lauren Richmond Jr. and today I'm welcoming Jesse Crookshank to the show. Hello and thanks for being here again. Hey Lauren, it's good to be back. Yeah, glad to have you. And uh, Jesse, you're still kind of my neighbor, right? Is that correct? Yeah, still living in um, northern Thornton suburb of Denver. So yeah, yeah we're we're not too far away. Yeah, um, I, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I well, I'll say this: I just found out that if the apocalypse happens, I'm going over to Jesse's house. So that's good to know. Um, anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Um. No, that's a great question. Like, I think, you know, if, if we're going to just take a little side trip, side trip into the, the apocalypse, you know, I have this uh, good theory. I'm from Wyoming, so hoarders and preppers and like that's kind of a very strong reality there, um, usually for like relig- religious or political reasons. Um, but there's kind of we determine there's like three different types of people. There's hoarders, marauders and victims. And hoarders, marauders, and victims. Yeah. Okay. So, so you kind of have to decide like what you're, what track you're actually going to take. And, um, my mom is a hoarder, so I can't, I can't go that route. My husband has okay. decided he's a victim because he's a pacifist and I just okay. can't do either of those. So I guess that makes me a marauder. So as long as you like waving the white flag, when you come over to my house during the apocalypse, okay. then, then we'll be cool. But otherwise, I don't know, like no guarantees. Is that like Marauder? Like, again, this is thinking terrible apocalyptic movies. Um, Zombie Land, where like they're traveling together in a crew and like they're. Yeah, well, I think Mad Max let us know that to be isolated just wasn't a good idea. So I think you have to kind of go more Zombie Land. You have to have your clan or your pod or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This is helpful. Um, and I should say, I don't know if it's coming through for our listeners, but my neighbors are doing like a a dance thing in the in the road outside. So if there's some music coming through, just enjoy, just enjoy it and imagine yourself. Maybe you could see the performance. Um, I wanted to ask too before we dive into your book, Jesse. I think you're the only guest I've had on so far still who's from the Foursquare tradition, mm-hmm. and I think you talked a little bit about it in our last interview, but just for new listeners, perhaps talk kind of real quick about the Foursquare tradition. Yeah. Foursquare um, is uh, comes out of the Wesleyan branch of, of everything. Right. So 
um, Methodist's cousin to Foursquare. Mm-hmm. So, but Foursquare is quite Pentecostal. M- would consider themselves more Pentecostal than evangelical. And Foursquare mm-hmm. was started by Amy Simple McPherson in the 1920s. She was Canadian missionary to China, and her husband passed away in China from malaria, and she was quite sick. Um, had a, had a child with him, but. While she's laying on her her bed thinking that she's going to die and pass away like her husband did, um, God tells her that that he's not done with her yet. So hmm. she goes back to um, Ontario in Canada and just feels that compelling, burning thing to, to keep going about her missionary work. And she starts, she gets a car and she starts doing this traveling revival and giant, and, mm-hmm. and they ended up being giant tent revival. She she was specifically Salvation Army, but um, had a had a gift for for healing, miraculous healing, um, and mm-hmm. yeah, went all around all the around the nation doing that, and landed in L.A. Ended up staying in L.A. and building um, Angelus Temple in Echo Park, and in there, like she in the nineteen twenties and thirties, she had seven services. In the early 30s, there was her congregation membership was 40,000. And before wow. women could vote, she owned the largest radio station in North America. And so you wow. could broadcast the services and you could get them in Georgia. You could get them on the East Coast. Hmm. So she is the first, the quintessential televangelist. Everybody since then wants yeah. to be her, right? Even if they yeah. don't think that women should preach in, in public. Everybody wants to be her. And um, yeah, so many, lots of healing has a value. Foursquare is a value for moderation. So it's not, it's not like AG or Assemblies of God. Um, It's a little more like calm. Amy would talk about how God should be the focus, not your erratic behavior. So Mm, there's a little, a management there. And she started the first Bible college for women and minorities. Because women and minorities oh, okay. weren't allowed to be educated in seminaries. Yeah. So first Bible yeah. college for women and minorities um, called Life Pacific uh, or Life Bible okay. College. And they sent out people. They they educated people from all over the world and they went back home. And that's so that creates another marker of Foursquare, where is this value of indigenous empowerment, which means it's not mm-hmm. it's not a colonizing, you know, culture, missionary yeah. kind of thing. So. The Sri Lankan church started in 1923, the Sri Lankan Foursquare Church, because I was in the first graduating class from Life Bible College. So huh. people would go back to their nations and start their start their Foursquare churches. And the, um, the center of Foursquare uh, globally is a global council. So it's egalitarian, both racially hmm. and in gender. Um, wow. That's an also quite a distinctive aspect about Foursquare. So... And yeah. it's a little rock and roll compared to some of the yeah. other like Pentecostal Wesleyan traditions. Four squares kind of rock and roll. <laughs> hmm. Well, thanks for, thanks for engaging me with that. Yeah. Um, we just, we just had a little fun church history lesson here for our listeners. Um, well, I had Jesse on, um, she's coming out with a new book. Is it, when is it coming out here? As, as recording this, it's the end of April. It's coming out in May. Is that correct? Yeah, May 9th. Okay. So it should be this episode. When this episode airs, the book should be available. I imagine it's for, for, uh, advanced copy or for 
pre-orders now anyway. Uh, but the book is Ordinary Discipleship, How God Wires Us for the Adventure, a Transformation. And why don't you start us off just by talking about like, you know, why write the book? Yeah, the book um, has been a little bit, most, I think most first time solo authors, I've co-written other books, but this is my first solo project. You know, it, it is a labor of love. Like there's something that has to compel you enough to go on the journey right. of being a solo first author. And um, for me, I had taught people for a long time, let's let's say over 20, over 20 years, how to be disciple makers. I did that at the beginning in the wilderness ministry that I talk about in the book. Um, I was mm-hmm. mentored in how to do that through the people who started the wilderness ministry. We built it into um, a, a globally reputable um, guiding school uh, for rock climbing, backpacking, um, snow mountaineering. But so I was, I was, I was, I was kind of spent my ministry formation in this environment and taught people how to be disciple makers. And then in my early thirties, I was recruited into Foursquare denominational leadership and began teaching Mm -hmm. pastors about how to make disciples. Cause it was, it was quite interesting to me to realize how little people who had come through seminary and people who had been formally educated in ministry, how little training yeah. that they had in disciple making. And if yeah. they're not taught it, then they can't actually teach it to other people. Right. So we can say that we believe everyone should make disciples, but no one could answer the question how. And then I become aware of like the resources that they have available. And the resources I was, I just, I just really struggled with them because they're either seminary light because it's just mm-hmm. a, a light version of what they've been taught or it's right. spiritual disciplines focused, which there's nothing wrong with systematic theology or spiritual disciplines, but it's not what you train an ordinary person to do or to, to, to share as disciple making. Like, like that's like teaching yeah. calculus when they need arithmetic. Right. So yeah, there just weren't resources. And even in um, even when they had some that were more available and, and not necessarily there, they were more relational disciple making. Even those books were written to people in leadership. And there was this, this misunderstanding um, and this conflation of disciple making and leadership. And for me, everyone's called to be a disciple maker, but not everyone's called to be a leader in your organization. And so we have to detangle hmm. those mm-hmm. two. So, so there wasn't anything that was written to the person the ordinary Christian yeah. about the relational disciple making, but not a power position or authority position as a leader. And so I wanted to write that book because that's what I've been teaching people for a long time. So it was a gap in the resources and I'd have a lot, I have a lot of experience doing it. So that that's why I got started. And when I needed encouragement, I would pick up the books I didn't like and reread them. And be like, <laughs> ah, we need something more. To kind of yeah. encourage, I don't know if rage encouragement is the right is a very Christian thing to do, but it is. I mean, it's motivating. I got through a couple seasons. It's motivating. So it's interesting because you you talked about kind of the systematic systematic can't say the word systematic theology discipleship style, and it reminds me of kind of like we were talking earlier about like the nineties Christianity. Like I'm thinking back like Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict. Yeah. Um, that kind of discipleship you write in your book. If we are not 
transformed by facts and information, then why does everyone keep trying? And I picked on there the 90s Josh McDowell. I mean, I think I still, I think I see this on the left today of like, oh, here's a bunch of climate facts about how climate change is happening, um, you know, on and on and on. It, like the right and left keeps trying to just push facts. Like wh- why do we keep doing that if it's not working? Well, because we have been indoctrinated for 500 years that we are a brain that is rational, that we can convince. And that mm. is the higher, more enlightened path. Uh, literally from the alignment. And so we've made the mind the highest good there is and the most important thing. But if we look at any kind of disciple-making movement anywhere else in the world, they're not doing things that way. (laughs) Yeah. And so so we've, as uh, Dallas Willard says, we've educated ourselves beyond our obedience. But that is Mm. a default of what will naturally happen um, because of the way that we teach. So as a neuroscientist, um, there's a few things that I think about. One is that the brain doesn't seek truth. The brain doesn't care okay. about truth. Brain does not care about truth. The brain does not. As evidenced by climate change, um, no, like, like the, the reason that we don't care about facts, but also is simply evidenced by the fact that I still eat the cookie. Right. I yeah. know I shouldn't eat yeah. the cookie. I'm not supposed to eat the cookie. The cookie has no value for me. And yet I can't walk by it. I got to eat it. So we think that if we have information and facts and then the opportunity to choose, then that should mm-hmm. create transformation. That's not how we work biologically. Like our biology. Let me ask. So since you stole one of my questions, I was going to ask already here. Let me ask this follow up question. I've often wondered, does the, you can probably imagine in, in, in conservative circles, it's kind of this like, well, if we know the world is going to hell again, I'm broadly, this is a broad brush, you know, conservatives will often mentally assent, you know, if, if unrepentant, the world is going to hell, the vast majority of the world is going to hell. You know, it's like, well, if we really believe that we'd be out knocking on doors asking everyone i've wondered and i thought like is the inverse that again um many on the left would say climate change is real like this two percent one more half percent global warming it's coming it's gonna be disastrous i think the similar could be said like if we really believe that we'd like stop driving turn off all the lights immediately so somehow somehow that fact is not like really producing meaningful change right no, no, none of the things that that when we talk about them theoretically should should move us to different behavior. They mm-hmm. they don't. They they just don't because we're not created to be motivated that way, which is kind of fascinating. What we are created to be motivated by is identity. So the brain hmm. seeks identity. And and the interesting thing so like the heart doesn't seek truth either. The heart seeks belonging. The only part of us that actually seeks truth is the spirit. And I think hmm. that's that's why the kingdom is really the ultimate goal that really should unite left and right and whatever your theology mm-hmm. is, whatever your political dispensation is, like like the kingdom is the cultural unifier for all of us because the spirit is drawing us to that. Um apart from that though, you know, we're created to 
have an identity, which is why Paul talks about our identity in Christ all the freaking time. Like that's mm-hmm. our motivator. If we said, I am, I am a kingdom agent and I care about the kingdom, therefore I'm going to take care of the planet because I am a steward, then mm-hmm. that may motivate us differently, right? Or if, if I am a lover of my neighbor, then that should motivate us differently. But, it, but identity is what our brain, our brain is created for. Hmm. And our heart is created for belonging. So I am a lover of people and my people love our neighbors. Or I yeah. am a steward of the earth and my people care well for, for, for God's creation and our gift. So, so you have to have both. That actually creates intrinsic motivation inside of us. Yeah. yeah. When your identity to to kind of go back to Josh McDowell, I have a, I have an article on my website about how to find truth in a post-truth Ooh. world. Yeah. And I actually pick on evidence that demands a verdict because the identity there is judge. Huh. And we love to be judge. We're judging yeah. out what's right and yep. wrong, what yep. evidence counts and what evidence doesn't count. And that plays yep. into our fallen nature of hmm. judge. So hmm. we're not actually supposed yeah. to take that seat. That doesn't belong to us. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, a whole that's other theology conversation. hundred <laughs> um, percent. The reason why I like relational disciple making is yeah. because that discipleship is a journey of identity, a journey of identity that of us being more closely connected to God, that, the change that comes from that union with God and mm-hmm. then, and that belonging both to to God and to others. So if we can if we can lean into that, maybe maybe we can make some ground with the time that we have. Cuz I feel like we've wasted a lot of time doing the wrong things. A lot of time. So I want to talk about you've kind of talked here already about this, but and this was a term that I heard a lot in my formative years, head knowledge versus heart knowledge. Um, talk about the two, um, you, you write, I think, or, or I want to know also like, why can't head knowledge become heart knowledge? Um, well here, I don't want to leave you or give you too much here. Start with that, I suppose. Okay. Um, so I was, I mean, I was raised with that too. And then when I started studying neuroscience, it was kind of this thing in the back of, of my mind. Um, and what I learned in my in my studying is that there are actually two different kinds of long-term memory that align with head knowledge and heart knowledge. So okay. there is a long-term memory called semantic um, memory, and that is like your head knowledge. That is your memory of data facts, of facts, right? So the things that help you win Jeopardy and, you know, win at the, okay. you know, <laughs> at the, uh, what is what do they do at the bar where say that's how long since I've been out, like the quizzes, right? Where you have a team and you try <laughs> yeah, to win something yeah. and you like pizza yeah. or old Chicago or something. Can't even remember. Um, but that's called semantic, semantic memory. And it is stored in your prefrontal lobe. It's very disconnected from the rest of your brain and the rest of your body. And your brain and your body is not that interested in keeping it. So you forget it really easily, like the capitals mm-hmm. and the presidents and all the things that you right. memorize and your brain's like, eh, I don't really need that for my life. <laughs> and it dumps it and it doesn't ask you. Um, so that's one type of, of long-term memory. That's head knowledge. Super predictable, hi- super predictable forgetting rate. You're not going to remember stuff by tomorrow and it's all gone by the weekend. 
Right. Now, then the other type of long-term memory system is called episodic, and that has two parts. Um, muscle memory, procedural memory is, we call it muscle memory. So how you drive your car and how you roll your kayak and all those things that you can just automatically do. And then mm-hmm. the other one is autobiographical memory. An autobiographical memory is the memory of your story, the memory of your hmm. life, right? It's your autobiography. And that memory system is highly integrated in your brain and in your body. It's it's stored collectively in yeah. your entire hum, human personhood. And it's interconnected with empathy and morality and how we have how we treat each other. The other fascinating thing is that it's the only memory system that can project into the future. So hmm. the way you remember the past is the way that you project into the future. Semantic memory cannot do yeah. that. So for example, who was the 16th president of the United States? Lincoln, I think. Okay, apply that to your life. <laughs> right, I don't know. <laughs> right? I mean, you'd have to have some sort of story connected with Lincoln. But conversely, that's how trauma works in victims, right? Is they have that past trauma that's projecting how they think future relationships, interactions, et cetera, are going to turn out, right? Right, because it's all the same process. Right. And, and so – but so the struggle is, is that if we learn something as a data fact, this is why facts don't create transformation. It's the literally mm-hmm. the wrong memory system. So if I learn that God loves me as a fact, but it's not in my autobiography, it's not in my story. I don't have a story with it. I don't have an experience with it. I have mm-hmm. no journey. Then I can't apply it to my life. It, it doesn't impact my future. It doesn't change my behavior. It and my brain will like forget it super easily. So heart knowledge, autobiographical memory is the only memory system that creates transformation. But here's what's amazing is that if you learn something there, it automatically creates transformation. That's what I mean when I talk about hmm. how God wired us for transformation. Hmm. We are created that our story automatically impacts our future. We are created that if we learn something experientially, it automatically changes our life. So relational disciple-making narr- through narrative automatically changes us from the inside out. We can't help it, right? And it is identity mm-hmm. formation. While the, the, the semantic, the fact-based, the judgment-based um, way of engaging with God inoculates us to transformation because we think we know it. And you and I know tons of people, right? Who are like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know it, but their life ref- doesn't reflect that at all. Well, if you learn well, it in thinking- the heart knowledge in that autobiographical memory system, you're automatically transformed. It's crazy. Uh, are you, f- are you familiar with Steve Cuss's work? Mm-hmm. I think I've talked to you about him, right? Yeah. Um, like I think he's coming out with a book kind of on the divide pastors internally have between like knowing the message of God's love, but you know, knowing it in a person kind of that head versus heart thing. And I'm wondering if that's, this is kind of what the problem is. It's because at pastors we're you know, we go to Bible college or seminary, or in my case, both, you know, we're learning, learning, learning so much, but it's not like impacting us experientially. Yeah. And it, I mean, for me too, cause I was raised in the church. In, mm-hmm. a, in a not an amazing church. I mean, there were pros and cons of my my childhood right, experience. Right. But I struggle with, do I really believe God is good? Do I really believe? I mean, is, mm-hmm. maybe this time he's really going to fail me, right? I, I mean, that's my default. Yeah. My default is insecure attachment. 
Right. But my husband who came to um, faith in Jesus as an adult, he was wooed by love. He hmm. doesn't have that baggage, right? He had an experience with God that that turned into faith in Jesus. And so he doesn't struggle like I do. He doesn't have hmm. this worry or this this default suspicion where I'm educated but don't believe it. He believes yeah. it and he's not educated. <laughs> but his faith is amazing. I mean, he is educated now, but you know, 20 years ago. Sure, he, sure. He he would argue with me about the Bible all the time. And I would be like, who even are you? You've never even read the Bible. What are you talking about? But I would look hmm. at he'd be like, look it up. And I would, mm-hmm. and he'd be right because he knew God. Wow. I knew scripture. He knew God. Wow. Yeah. One of yeah, us was better off than the other. Yeah. And so I needed him to help me know God to relearn scripture. Huh. Well, let's uh, something else, and I, I mentioned this before we started recording. Um, something else that really stuck with me from the book, and I forget which chapter it is, um, is what you call fault summits. Again, kind of this mm-hmm. outdoorsy approach. Um, so you had two fault summits, which really hit me strong: um, behaving the right way and learning the right information. So I've seen this. I'm going to full disclosure here. I've seen this. I think. I got to, excuse me for my listeners, I got a grocery delivery happening and he's really insistent about making sure that I know they're on the front porch. <laughs> um, so anyway, behaving the right way, like, again, thinking back to my teenage years, like this was a, what I think like being a good Christian was about in my conservative fundamental circles. Like it was behaving the right way. And then two like I needed to learn the right information. Um, but if I can go here, and again, this might, for my listeners, forgive me here, but what has really troubled me, and I mean this from like the bottom of my heart, what has really troubled me about progressive Christianity, and I'm painting a bit of a broad brush here, is that I think those same tendencies have really crept into progressive Christianity. It's about behaving the right way and learning the right information. So I don't know if you want to speak to that part of it, uh, but that's something that I noticed that is I've seen in both contexts that I found myself in as a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when I was at, um, at Harvard at the college of education, they still had that too, which is fascinating to me. Like they wanted to, they wanted to solve bullying through, education Mm -hmm. and they wanted to solve like education was the answer to everything, whether it was climate change or, or social ills and, and things like that. And it's, and I was like, you guys, like you, the neuroscience is here. We're in the, like, I'm studying the neuroscience here that, that demonstrates that's not true. And I think it's just that they didn't have it instead, right. They didn't have, they didn't have what to have Mm -hmm. otherwise. And, and I think that's why we struggle, but, but without a spirit led life then this is then that's what we have we only we have right information or right behavior because again the spirit is the only thing that's that helps us seek truth and you know regardless of what the right behavior is the moral behavior is or what the right information is you know the facts that are actually evidenced and provable um 
they, they, we can get lost in, in pursuing those because we want to be, we want to either that orthodoxy or that orthopraxy, right? Mm -hmm. But here's, here's the thing that I would struggle with if I can be a little Pentecostal is that I have a lot of questions about God and how God works. And you know who doesn't is the demonic. The Hmm. demonic has better theology than I do. Hmm. Like they don't have questions. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't wonder how long the earth took to be made and where Jesus Mm -hmm. actually went and what happened, you know, in that three days between his crucifixion and his resurrection. But I do, but they don't. Okay. So, so what, right? What does that get them? They're not close to God, right? They don't have that. There's something missing that that doesn't provide. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's that leaves me with the empty false summit of of uh, right information, and then when it comes to orthopraxy or that right behavior, I think about mm-hmm. a lot of what Jesus and um, John the Baptist talked to the Pharisees about because they had right behavior. Right, they were epically amazing about a million different disciplines that I can't even like. Okay, right. like eight hundred, right. right? Right, I can't even not eat the cookie. I'm gonna be a terrible Pharisee. So that kind of right behavior and and it and they miss Jesus. So we still miss the truth even with right behavior. And I think that's why Paul talked a lot about how all of that led him in the wrong direction. Right? I seek to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Like all of that stuff was a distraction to me understanding the goodness of who God is. And so we can get lost in those, I think, because we can control them. Hmm. It's something that we can achieve apart from connection to God's heart. We can have right hmm. behavior and not be connected to God's heart. We can have right information and not be connected to the author of that information. Yeah. But for me, I just see a different, I see a different purpose. I see a different accountability in in what Paul and Jesus talked about. And that was, and that's love. And love huh. sometimes has the wrong information and sometimes behaves the wrong way, but love is always seeking to to empty itself, to serve, to to champion. <laughs> if if your inform information is if right information is your goal, then you're gonna be offended that God forgets all the things that we do right and wrong. Hmm. <laughs> and if and if right behavior is your goal, you're gonna be offended that God loves and receives the people who are awful. Right, right. Sorry, I'm taking notes here. Um, you know, I was thinking about, and here, you're speaking to me. If anybody, you're speaking mm-hmm. to me, hopefully this benefits our listeners. I, I can't help but think, and again, I consider myself well within the progressive Christian context, whether I necessarily want to be labeled as that as such all the time. Certainly, 15, 20, 25 years ago, I was well within fundamentalist Christian circles. And in both contexts, again, like, I want to be equally, I guess, I don't know, let me say this for right now, hopefully it doesn't get me in trouble. I see people behaving the right way, going to the marches, waving the flags, um, doing all the things they should be doing learning the right information, but they're just jerks. Like they're just plain old jerks. Um, and that really bothers me. It really bothers me. Um, 
because I don't know if, if it's my past trauma or whatever in fundamentalism where it was like you could look the right way, behave the right way, just but be a jerk. Um, so that's why I'm like, I, I really resonate with this. Seek love first, even though it's might sometimes have the wrong info, sometimes do the wrong thing. Um, because again, and maybe um, this is perhaps a little bit countercultural, Jesse, because again, right now as a society, it's kind of obsessed with like, well, if you do the wrong thing, then that's God forbid. Yeah. Yeah. We're very graceless right now. I mean, part of that is reaction to um, cover up, right? Mm-hmm. Part of that is a reaction to oppression. So I don't, right. I don't want to rob us of the moments of, of what we need to walk through. Sure. Um, sure. By saying, okay, we'll just jump to the end where we're all singing Kumbaya in heaven. Like, right. No. Okay. No, <laughs> there's a journey there and there are some very important things. Like you have to hold people accountable in order to forgive. Forgiveness isn't mm-hmm. a blanket thing, right? You have to tell right. the truth in order to have somebody, something to forgive somebody for. So I don't want to, I don't want to skip in, an important journey, but for, for me, I remember that uh, that the goal is how we love. Like that's how we're. That's what I'm held accountable to. In mm. at the end of the day, is how did I love? Did I love my enemies? Did I love my friends? Did I, you know, seek to um, treat others, hold others in better esteem than myself? Like Philippians two talks about, and mm-hmm. and I can't do that with everyone every day. <laughs> I'm right. on my own yeah. on my own journey, but if I'm going to be with God where He is, and I'm going to be Christ-like, that's what Christ did, and so that that's my standard. Um, not just being better than my oppressor, like that's not the standard. Hmm. Then we end up in like Pablo Ferrer's, you know, where the oppressed right. becomes the oppressor, and and we just same boss, old boss, same as the new boss, right? We just mm-hmm. we have the same game. We just switch who's king of the mountain, but we have the same right. dynamic going. And Jesus came to like blow that up and said, no, like that's, it it is completely other than that. My friend, um, Dan White Jr. wrote a book called Love Over Fear. And there he talks about how fundamentalism is not your set of beliefs, but how you hold your beliefs. And it's a very black and white rigid paradigm. So regardless Mm -hmm. of how, what beliefs you want to say are right and which things you want to say are wrong, that rigidity and that othering and that villainizing of the other is is the dynamic that I think Jesus constantly calls us and demonstrates a life where that's not okay. Because I honestly think like he loved Judas hmm. as much yeah. as he loved Peter. Yep. I don't think he had a class system there. Yeah. I don't think that's what the dynamic was. And so, man, I mean, that's a that's sobering and challenging. And it means I don't get to sit in my own self-righteousness because at the end mm-hmm. of the day, my like little ability to love my enemy compared to what Jesus did definitely illustrates Isaiah where my righteousness is filthy rags. I mean, I'm working really hard on those rags. Right. They're right. as clean as I can get them, but they're still, they're still a long way. And so that's where for me, grace is essential to how I live. And I have to remember that if God puts up with it, then there's something for me to learn there. And I'm not exactly where he is if I can't love people well. Well, 
this is good stuff. Hopefully listeners are getting something out of this because I sure am. Um, let's talk about community as the importance for transformation. Uh, I've been seeing this theme um, thankfully emphasized again and again in different contexts and from different sources. You know, you know as well as I do, we live in such a such an individual individualistic context. Um, talk about why community matters so much. Yeah, I I think it's interesting that we're created to be a herd species. Um, and there's this fascinating thing about the way the brain works that I don't totally understand, and I don't know if we ever will, but it's where we mirror what we look at at an at a neurological level. So what I mean by that is if I hold a cup. My brain makes a certain pattern of what it's like to hold the cup and, you know, is it, is it warm? How heavy is it? You know, all that kind of dynamic. My brain makes a pattern and without you holding the cup, your brain mirrors my brain. Like, what's that about? I don't know how that works, but it happens. And like, this is how I talk in the book, how babies learn how to smile, this mirroring Mm -hmm. process. So you look at me holding this cup, your brain makes the same pattern And now our minds are in sync and we have what is called mutual mind. Hmm. And we feel that as connection and resonance and it feels nice, right? It's like, oh, look, look, we're, we're, I I don't know. I mean, it's a transcendence that we are created to experience that from the, from existence. I mean, wherever you want to say life starts. So yeah, yeah. That when we don't have that. When we don't have that mutual mind, when we don't have that connection, then our brain experiences it as like failure to thrive. Hmm. Our soul and our spirit experience it. I think we're in a failure to thrive spiritually age, you know, state hmm. of being with all mm-hmm. of our, you know, uh, we've, we've substituted technology for relationship right. or we have relationship through yeah. technology. But the problem is that that right. technology isn't a face. So it doesn't create mutual mind. So it doesn't create Mm. that resonance and that feeling of connection and transcendence. And so we never actually create shared reality, which means we feel alone, Hmm. isolated. So that's part of this anxiety epidemic, right? Yeah. Let me ask. Go ahead. So we need community to know ourselves, to form ourselves. It's we need community like we need air. And and Hmm. you may be an introvert and need different type of community right. or less community or one community as opposed to 30 community, but we need it as much as we need breathing. So let me ask this, um, perhaps on a related note, I'm seeing or hearing again, anecdotally seems like more and more folks from evangelical low church traditions kind of gravitating towards liturgy toward the daily office, for example, do you think it's similar vein here of like, you know, again, I grew up Baptist low church where there was so much like DIY spirituality type thing, which we're seeing kind of on steroids today. Do you think this kind of like gravitation amongst evangelical low church folks toward these kind of traditions and liturgies is part of that? Like, Hey, we need this communal resonance. Yeah, I think we're, I think we'll, as society begin to reconstruct ways to have shared reality. 
Um, mm. And we'll do that experientially. We can't do that with information. We can't do that with background or culture, or history, or any of the ways that, or family, you know, like you can't, you can't assume anything these days, including, including gender. Right. So, right. so, so, the, so much that we built ourselves um, socially that we had social foundation, right or wrong or whatever, right. I'm not judging that, but we had a grounding of shared reality. And then we had different right. experiences of that reality, but we yeah. didn't argue on what, like some of those fundamentals. Right. But right. we're completely fractured right now. We don't have any dynamic of shared reality. So we need to experience things together. And that's where I think liturgy is extremely helpful for recreating that and, and giving us that experience of, of connection so we can feel connection with one another. I also think um, evangelicals are realizing that they they need the grounding in the symbols and the rituals of actual theology that is in those things in liturgy, right? They're not just... They're not just words that somebody made up right. like an evangelical right. song. They're actually right. tested and and have tested and have lasted through time. And I think that that mm-hmm. time tested transcendence evangelicals are looking for, especially as they're deconstructing their own, you know, conflation of Americanism, Christianity mm-hmm. dynamic. So I think that that helps them know, oh, yeah, no, this can be sure because this exists all over the world, not just in America. And it's lasted for a few hundred years. Okay, there's something I can hang on to, and I mm. think that they're they're hungry for that. And that's it's a good it's a good moment for high church. Yeah, for sure. Uh, maybe not for the actual high churches themselves, but for high church broadly speaking. I know, but isn't that fascinating? Like ten years ago, we were like, "Oh, yeah. high church is dead. It will yeah. never come." You know, it's 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 had its day, and it's completely you know over. And and yet. The pendulum swings. It's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so to this, and this is the last question here I'll ask you um, before we take a break. I'm I'm always thinking, obviously, with this pod about the future of the church. I know you work in this broader genre or field. Like, I thought recently, like, I wonder if, like, as much as World War II was kind of influential in, like, the post you know, so many things go back to like, oh, that changed after World War II, and how that was a boom for, for church and 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 middle class and suburbia. Like, is COVID going to be like that kind of uh, line in the sand? I don't know what the correct word would be, the correct metaphor of like. Yeah, it it might even be more like the Gutenberg hmm. um, printing press. I think it's going to be more substantial than than even World War II was, because we wow. went through it as a planet. Hmm. And and we didn't all go through World War II as a planet. Like there's no part of of the earth, there's no people on this planet that COVID didn't significantly impact in in the way that it, you know, health and death and economy and politics and and like every part of our sociology is is shattered right now mm-hmm. all over the planet. And I don't know how it reassembles itself and it, I mean, it will, it will, but I think it's, I think it's going to be incredibly substantial in in history. It's going to be a huge marker. And as far as the church is concerned, I think it's like the Protestant Reformation kind of a change. Wow. Well, the book is Ordinary Discipleship, How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation. 
Um, highly recommend it. Let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Jesse Cruikshank and uh, love the conversation here. Um, I think I've asked you some of these before, so I don't know. I'm just going to free will it kind of if I can. Um, and let's, let's see how this goes. If you're Pope for a day, um, what do you want to do? What might that look like? Any any new thoughts? Yeah, I think I think I've I'm I'm definitely a little different myself than than when we last talked. And so I think if I were Pope for a day, I would close down the church, like all of the buildings for mm-hmm. like a month. Like actually okay. not like like COVID did, but if we could just hang out outside of that for a month and and see each other and be with each other face to face. So I still want the gathering. I just don't want it mm-hmm. inside of a building. And you know, have us ask the question, what do we want to do together? And have no no preconceived answer to that. So I'm not anti-structure and I do I love liturgical things, but if we could just reinvent it even for a month like in the way that would make us excited about being there hmm. and going and, you know, then I'd love for us to experiment with that. So if you could look into the future, 10, 20, 30 years, what do you think it's going to look like for the American institutional church? And let me, let me frame it from this context. I've recently um, made a decision to, to go, from three quarter time at my church to quarter time at my church and take a quote unquote marketplace ministry job because I was like, I don't see myself getting another 20, 25 year career out of institutional church. Um, do you disagree? Do you agree? Where, what nuance do you want to add there perhaps? Yeah, I've been, I, I'm very interested in generations and how they define truth and, and spiritual maturity and, because I think that that's important for discipleship, right? How, what, it, what resonates with them? How do they identify what's true? And then where do they, what's their credibility, right? What's the street cred for that generation? Um, and what's been fascinating for me as Gen Z, as I've been interviewing them for about the last 10 years off and on, is that at this point, even when I talk to people, even at the church that I'm at, who serve Gen Zs, who serve in ministry, so that'd be 25 mm-hmm. and younger, who serve. Like none of them feel called to full-time vocational ministry. Okay. Hmm. So I wanted to see like, what is up with this? So I was part of a group. We called a bunch of Gen Zers that have started ministries Mm -hmm. together and had like uh, a conference, like it was about 30 people. And among them, none of the Gen Zers felt called to full-time vocational ministry. Everything was, they had a, they had a job job. RJ mm-hmm. called that real job. And then ministry was life. Ministry was lifestyle. It was like being like, I think the way that maybe the, um, the greatest generation, you know, my grandparents thought about like the Elks club or mm-hmm. the moose lodge, mm-hmm. you know, like, like those, those clubs that they had that were for country clubs, you serve, you give, it's part of life, you organize. And yet it's not a, it's not a job. You, you, you exhibit responsibility and leadership in it, but it's not, it's not a job. And that's what I see the Gen Zers being like that. And it's fascinating to me that 100% of probably 200 Gen Zers that I've talked to do not feel called to full-time ministry. 
Okay, wow. so let's project that out 30 years. Yeah. That means Seminaries. that all these pulpits are yeah. either gonna be are gonna be filled with older millennials. Right. Millennials, some millennials still do feel called the right. Um but then what? I think it's gonna drastically change seminaries. Right. It's drastically gonna change pulpits and all of these ministries that um boomers have built and, mm-hmm. and hung on to because they wanted to hand it full full sail off to someone else and they haven't found that person or they haven't looked for that person or where, whatever it is that you want us that the boomer just has in their head on why they haven't transitioned or retired, there's not going to be anybody to hand it to. Huh. No one's going to take it. Or if they do, it'll just be a few years and they won't see it demise, but it will, it won't, right. it won't survive five years or so past them. So I don't, okay. what comes up in the wake of that? I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, but I think small is the new mega church. Yeah. Yeah. And simple is the new yeah. uh, best practice. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. I want to keep you for another hour um, just so I can keep pinging you with questions here. But I imagine you probably have better things to do and I should do other things too. But uh, this is a great conversation. Um, what you, why, don't you give, uh, why don't you give where people can connect with you, the, that sort of thing? Yeah. So um, the ministry that I started in the last year um, is called Whoology, W-H-O-O-L-O-G-Y. Whoology.co is the website. Um, so you can go there. I, all of the stuff I'm kind of putting into to trainings and um, releasing the book and all of that. The book website specifically is ordinarydiscipleship.com, and you can go on there and link to Amazon. But this comes out after it has been released. So you can just go to Amazon and get the book. Um, and I just want to ask you to leave a review on us. Be honest. Leave an honest review. I don't I don't believe in hype. I believe in yeah. authenticity and transparency. So, you know, say, say how you feel. Um, but if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter and on Instagram under Your Brain by Jess. And my ministry has a, has, you know, URLs too, like on Twitter and stuff like that. So you can find that too. Awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation. Always leave folks with a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you. And also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.